Do you love this podcast and want to find a way to support it? Well, guess what? You can become a sustaining member today. You can do that by visiting the Talk Classic to Me page at anchor.fm. That's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M. Once there, just click the support button and select the recurring amount you want to contribute to the podcast. This helps keep our podcast going and the good content that you have come to know and love flowing. You can also find the link to support us on our social media at Talk Classic to Me on Instagram and feel free to follow us there as well. Thank you so much for being a listener. Enjoy the show. Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we are talking about the film The Thin Man from 1934 with my wonderful guest, Nick Lang. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. This is Nick Lang. Welcome, Nick Lang. Hi, hi. Thanks for having me back. Thank you so much for coming back to our show, Nick. We're very happy to have you. Um, what did you think of this film, The Thin Man from 1934? What were your, your first thoughts? I liked it very much. I enjoyed it. It's a classic that I've never seen. It, it obviously was very successful because it spawned a ton of sequels. <laughs> yes, it did. Um, huge franchise back in the 30s. All of which I have seen, by the way. I'm curious to hear about those ones. But um, what I uh, really enjoyed about this movie, obviously the detective characters, the, mm-hmm. the husband and wife duo of Nick and Nora, they are uh, constantly wasted they're they're like alcoholic detectives. Um, yeah. They're functioning alcoholic detectives because they're drinking twenty four seven in this movie. Yes, they're drinking consistently and they're kind of savage with each other, but it's from a place of love. Like you can see right. how much they love each other, but they say the most savage stuff to each other, and you're like, oh damn. That was a sick, yeah, yeah. witty repartee moment that you both just had there. Ooh. They play with each other. They banter back and forth. And um, I saw, like, reviews that were saying it was something about they were one of the first on-screen couples in movies that were, like, uh, sexual after being married to each other. Yes, that's a good way of putting it. Well, and that's what's cool about the tone is there's this tone that's like a little bit innocent, but not, you know, yeah. it's like they can get away with saying these sassy things because there's a, like a combination of both innocence and knowing about what they're saying. So they get away with all of these like raunchy things that they say to each other that would maybe yeah. be over sexualized in another context. But here it's like just the right amount. The movie ends with them doing it. That's the last shot of the movie. They're going to have sex. Yes. The dog covers his eyes. The dog covers his eyes. The dog has his own bed up on top. They're busy on the twin bed below. Though I was worried about the dog being up on the top bunk. I was like, don't jump down, little dog. Although, fun fact about this movie. So that dog was like a famous Hollywood dog. His name was Skippy. He was the highest paid pet actor in his time. 
Okay, I thought you were going to say he was the highest paid actor in the film. He was the highest paid actor in all of Hollywood <laughs> at that time. Wow. Um, he was not people at home. Uh, so, uh, that dog, Asta, is the character name, but the real dog name is Skippy. He was in several films. He was in The Awful Truth with Cary Grant. That's what I knew wow. him from. And he was in Bringing Up Baby as well. And you were like, I was worried about him. Apparently... The trainers wouldn't let Myrna Loy like handle the dog outside of any sort of scene work because they were worried the dog's concentration would get ruined. So he, the dog didn't know her very well, and I guess he bit her during oh, production. Oh wow! Oh, and I was like, oh shoot. But you know what? He's still a good boy. He's still a good boy. He's the cutest, and he inspired. I guess a ton of breeding of that type of dog happened after this movie came out. Like oh. everyone wanted Asta. I think he's a. Yeah. I don't know my dogs. He's like a wire hair terrier i don't know he's a terrier of some sort yeah i know that they say that he's a terrier in the movie there you go so when i started talking about this podcast like two years ago i went to nick and i was like nick please i want you to be a regular guest and i know what i want to watch with you i want to watch this movie the thin man and i said don't watch it don't watch it until we do the podcast and i did so i feel like for years you have held off on watching this movie. I appreciate that so much. You're welcome. And I thought that you would like it, and I wanted to do it right now because Turner Classic Movies has a um, a tradition of showing all of the Thin Man movies over New Year's Eve because it's oh. a great... The first two movies take place over Christmas and New Year's Eve. Gotcha. So it's a great like bridge into the next year. Plus, they drink all the time. They're fun. It's a great way to rein in a new year. So I'm kind of doing a TCM thing of like... This is our first episode of season two, first episode of 2021, and I'm pulling a TCM and bringing us into the new year with a, with pleasantries. So that was my whole, like, why I chose it for now. And then why I chose it for you, what I thought you would like about it is we've already established we love a murder mystery. Love this them. is one of the great first early on film murder mysteries, and it's one mm -hmm. that captures this, like, fun spookiness as well. Like, it yes. does have moments of suspense, and it blends those two things really well together. The comedy and the suspense go very nicely. Plus, it's witty. Who does not love witty repartee? It's got something for everybody. It is interesting that this is one of those movies that's a Christmas movie, but not a Christmas movie, where they talk about Christmas in it. I had my friend Kyle watch this, who I talk about him all the time on the show. He was asking for Christmas movies that weren't normal Christmas movies, and I was like, well, yeah. you could try The Thin Man. And he said he didn't love that he got so confused about all the women because he said every woman that was not Myrna Loy basically looked exactly the same and that really confused him. And I get that. They all have similar haircuts and a similar face structure. You're not alone viewers at home if you also found the women looking similar confusing. Yeah, they. I think maybe they could have done a little bit better of, of casting different well, you know, old movies always could have done better with <laughs> the diversity yep, of the casting. Talk about it in every episode. Like, that's our 2020 lens. There's one person of color at the very end of the film in a mm -hmm. serving position. They are a yeah. waiter. Um, I don't feel necessarily that they put a stereotype on the waiter in speech, but still not great representation. What I do like, though, is that they did not have help throughout the movie like Nora and Nick don't have people waiting on them 
ever. Right. They're super wealthy and they don't have people waiting on them. They do things for themselves. Like if they want dinner, they're like, we're ordering up dinner. Like, let's go get some dinner. Or right. like if they're having a party, they're the ones serving the drinks. They're the ones getting everything together. I, yeah. I appreciated that. And not only are they serving the drinks to people, they have people of like lower classes all in their vicinity. Yeah, um, We're going to yeah. get to all that. I haven't even done the plot synopsis yet. Okay. We're going to okay, do major spoilers. We're going to tell you who killed it. Her, killed her so who killed just it. it who killed all the things you know what they all killed it <laughs> so if you don't want to hear fast forward i guess or cover your ears or watch the movie yeah watch the movie first pause watch the movie come back it's only an hour and a half that should be its other tagline it's only an hour and a half our podcast will likely be longer than the movie itself was good <sighs> we'll see okay so here's the plot synopsis first we're introduced to this man clyde winant and it's a really freaking cool introduction because we see his shadow before we see anything else. And they do really cool use of shadows in this movie. And we see his shadow and we see him holding something that looks a little menacing, like it sounds like a saw, it's not. It turns out that it's an experiment and he invents things. And at first we think he's a gruff old guy because his like worker man comes in and he yells at him and fires him and how dare you ruin my experiment. And then his daughter comes in. That guy was trying to be like, your daughter's here. His daughter comes in and we see what a sweetheart he is to his daughter and how much he loves his daughter and that he's actually kind of a fun, a fun guy. And we see within 10 minutes, we see all these different faces of this character. So we see him as like this gruff, oh, I'm mad at you, I hate you scientist guy. We see him like as this really funny, loving, caring father. Uh, he rehires the guy that he just was grumpy to and fired and doesn't even remember that he was mean to him. We find out that he's the kind of guy that cheats on his wife. He, him and his wife have a divorce, uh, mm -hmm. and he cheated on her with the secretary. Uh, we find out that his secretary is, like, not a, a high-class kind of lady. She's the kind of lady that hangs out with mobsters who might be scamming people over. Um, so we see, like, a lot of different sides to Clyde Winant, how, like, he's a family guy, but he's not because he also does these things. He's very complex. He could go either way. We don't know really what kind of person totally he is. Um, they establish early on that he's going to go away for a couple months to work on an invention. By the way, he goes away in October, and it's snowing in October, which confuses me deeply, but that's fine. For a long time in the beginning of the movie, I did not realize that it was three months before the rest of the movie. Yes. Um, and then they kept on saying, I saw him three months ago, and I thought for the very beginning everyone was lying. I was going like, that wasn't three months ago. That just happened, right? Nick, I was saying that too, and I've seen this movie so many times. It's like the yeah. fun new discovery. That and then who the fuck is Nunheim are my two thoughts every single time I watch this movie. Yeah, I don't yeah. ever remember, and we'll get mm -hmm. around to that. Okay, right. so Clyde Winant finds out his daughter's going to get married. He's like, that's great. I'm going to go on this trip, but I'll be back in time for your wedding on December 30th. You have my word. I love you. And he goes upstairs and he's going to go get his daughter a wedding present of like money, of bonds that he had put away. And he opens the safe and the bonds are missing. They're missing. And so he's like, oh, I wonder what happened to these. And his fishy looking clerk, who of course everyone in this film is kind of fishy, is mm. like, I guess Julia, your secretary slash girlfriend must have taken them. And he goes, ah. You're right. Tell my lawyer where I've gone. My lawyer's name is Macaulay. So he goes to Julia Wolf, and she is hanging out with a mobster, and the mobster leaves. And he's like, where's my money? And she's like, well, I took some of it, but... Also, this is, again, a side note. 
Did, how did they think they were not going to get caught? You can't just take $50,000 and expect someone to not notice that, I think. I think they set up that the thin man, <laughs> he's some sort of mad scientist. I don't yeah. <laughs> know what he makes, but I know that he invents some things. He melds things, doesn't he? Wasn't it like he made this gold and this ore? Yeah, he's a magic scientist who made gold and all this stuff uh he's an alchemist i think they set up that he's like forgetful and absent-minded so they yeah. took the money and then they said remember you told me to sell those and then he goes like i didn't do that i can understand like oh remember you told me about this hundred dollars it's fifty thousand dollars in 1936 it's like a million dollars right or more they expected to just take it and that he like to me that's a very large amount of money to take right. and play off as. It's still a large amount of money. I would love $50,000. Yeah. But yeah, so so he accuses her uh, of taking this money and he's like, you you have to have it back to me or I, I don't remember if he threatens her. I don't remember now. He, he says he's going to call the police. Okay, so he goes to her. He's like, you better come up with this money or the police are going to be called. And then she calls, does she call someone? I don't remember now. There's a there's a section of the movie where it cuts to a ton of different people who you have not met yet. Yes. And they're all they're going to be the suspects. This guy's going over here. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm going over here. And uh, don't even bother trying to remember who's who in the beginning. We see him threaten her. And then we see Clyde Winant walking down the street and we see his shadow. And then there's a time jump. And now... We are in current times, and current times meaning like December 23rd, 24th, 1934. Yeah. We meet uh, Winans' whole family. We like his daughter, but everyone else sucks. Uh, the son sucks. He's like obsessed with his mom and just weird and into like psychology. He has fixations. He talks about having a fixation on his mother. Yes. And then, and then that's all you can think of for the rest of the movie. <laughs> yeah. Go, and he's like super into the dead bodies and stuff. Yeah, he wants to see all the dead bodies and whatnot. And um, the actor, the actor doing it isn't one hundred percent funny. So you go like, "Am I supposed to think this is a funny character or what?" And I think you are. I read the book five years ago around Christmas time, like when I was home for Christmas. It was cozy and delightful. But what I remember about the book, I don't remember a ton. The things I remember being different are um, that it was more like a little grotesque and that you don't like any of the Winans. Like even Dorothy wow. Winant sucks. Like you don't even like her. She's obnoxious and she's like really hitting on Nick and... Ooh, no, Right? No. So in the movie they solve that problem by making her likable and giving her a fiancé so that yeah. it doesn't feel like she's hitting on She doesn't <laughs> have a fiancé in the book? She doesn't. They invented that all for the movie. Okay. Okay. And then, yeah. yeah, it's more like a little more dark in the book. The same with the Maltese Falcon. It's a little darker. And they, they kind of took that seediness, like the grittiness from the book, and polished it all out in the movie. And gotcha. um, what they were originally told to do in the movie, um, what he, they told the screenwriters, who are fantastic, who we're going to get to, um, they said, take the basic story, but really amp up that Nick and Nora relationship. And mm. that's what they did. And it's perfect like it really yeah. sells That's this piece the best part yeah yes so in the plot summary we've got a time jump we meet all these other people julia wolf the secretary has been discovered shot everyone suspects that clyde winant did it but no one's seen clyde winant and we haven't seen clyde winant 
and we don't know who did it either. We finally meet our stars, Nick and Nora. Nick is a retired police detective. Was he a police detective or was he just a detective for I, fun? I think I think he's just a private detective, just a private yes. eye. I think you're right too because all of the the people that are like in the lower universe trust him. Yeah, there are a bunch of like mobsters and criminals and stuff that come to his Christmas party. And he goes like, oh yeah, this guy caught me one time. And for some reason, they're friends. Yeah, you know, he's on the level. So yeah, he's he used to be a private detective. He got married to Nora. He's been in San Francisco for the last four years, living it up because she's rich. And he doesn't really care about being a detective. But Nora is like, dude, I would love to see you solve a case. That sounds like fun. And the first thing we see Nick doing is making a drink, of course, because that's what he does throughout the film. He does it in the whole movie. He's drinking constantly he drinks other people's drinks he loves it it's his favorite thing and then when we first meet nora i love that scene too because they're in like a high class kind of joint drinking the drinks and uh we see asta the dog before we see nora and we see a dog pulling a woman into this bar um and that's also the how they establish asta has a really good sense of smell because <laughs> yeah. he can spot nick in this in this mm -hmm. uh, fancy, fancy place. Um, but so normally we would see like a glamorous woman, like I'm a beautiful wife and I am glamorous. The first thing Nora does is fall down. She has all these packages in her arms. She's got a dog in front of her and she takes a pratfall. She falls yeah. down, picks herself up and makes a snarky comment about it. And you're like, ooh, I like her. I am on yeah. her side. She's cool. She is cool. We see their banter as well. So yeah, we meet Nick and Nora. They're great. Uh, a case pops up, Dorothy Winant, who is Clyde Winant's daughter, who we met in the first scene, um, she's like, my dad didn't show up, and he's supposed to be at my wedding in a few days. This isn't like him. I'm concerned. You worked for him a few years ago um, on a case. Would you mind, like, doing this case again? And Nick's like, no, I don't want to be a part of a case. Eventually, he does decide, okay, fine, I'll help and figure things out. And, and uh, through many, many twists and turns, he solves the case at a dinner party. He invites everyone to his house. They all sit down. He has a lot of great misdirects. And then he shows us that the killer, I'm going to tell you everyone at home, so get ready. The killer was the lawyer the whole time, who to me, it's so obvious it was the lawyer. The lawyer kept getting supposed calls from Clyde Winant, always in front of Nick for no real reason. Right. It was very suspicious. And I noticed this time, the first time we see Macaulay, that's the lawyer, He's getting out of a taxi cab, and he tries to stiff the cab driver. He's like, I'm not giving you yes. a tip because you drove too fast. And the driver's like, I already took your tip. Get out of here. Um, so yeah. it's like we, we see him trying to stiff someone and getting caught the first time we meet him. And that also tells us that he might be short on money. Right. So right away. And also they never quote unquote suspect him. He's always just kind of in the background being a concerned lawyer. Yeah, he's he's definitely a jerk the whole time. So Nick, I want to ask, what did you know? When did you know it? What like what parts tripped you up? In watching the movie, when it got to that point where it was cutting around to all of these different characters that I did not know, my brain said, all right, Nick, don't try to solve the mystery <laughs> it said it said you're not gonna figure it out just yeah. don't do it but as i was watching it you know i couldn't help but be suspicious of certain characters yes who were you suspicious of the thing about the lawyer was mm -hmm. that i thought that the lawyer was too boring to actually mm -hmm. be the killer 
Oh. I thought that the lawyer would have been too boring of a choice. So who I was suspicious of the entire time, which is interesting that you say he was not in the book, was the fiancé. Oh. I was I was suspicious of the fiancé the entire time. Dorothy has a fiancé. He comes in. It's like right when he comes into their life is when all the trouble starts. He seems like a guy who's like... Oh, well, I'm marrying you because I love you, not for your money. And then he, <laughs> um, and then he also, he's such a goody two shoes that you look at him and you go, he can't be that good. And everyone keeps going, like, he's met the family and he still wants to marry you. He's a brave man. And I was like, okay, it seems to me like they're trying to make us think it's the lawyer, but it may be this guy. Because I knew from right off the bat that our friend, the thin man, what's his name? Clyde Winant. Clyde Winant. I was like, he's dead. He's dead. That's okay. why no you one did has know. seen him. Yeah, I was like, he's definitely dead. He's certainly not the killer, and he's most likely dead. I was a little shocked that he wasn't the first victim you know i was like well, okay it's was. called the he was the first victim but in the movie i was like okay it's called the thin man this guy i think is supposed to be the thin man they at one point say he's the thin man and i was like okay so he's not the detective the detective isn't the thin man so it has to be either the killer or the person who got killed is the thin man so i was like okay that guy it factors into the plot of how nick figures out that he has been killed because he finds a dead body buried in the guy's laboratory again i don't know what he's some kind of alchemist he creates gold out of something i don't know he's a mad scientist frankenstein guy but it factors into the plot line not at all they find a body and they go like all of these clothes have been very well preserved and they're huge they're very big clothes and they're like this is a the clothes of a you know a heavier gentleman but nick goes like oh well that's very convenient that the clothes survived when mm -hmm. the guy is a skeleton. I'm trying to remember, I think something had been done to the body in the book because uh -huh. I was thinking about this. I was like, okay, three months, is that the amount of time it would take for a body to decompose? Because I would kind of think maybe it would still look like him a little bit, but I don't really know much about body decomposition. But I feel like in The Thin Man, the book, one, they have a better explanation of why he is the thin man. It isn't just because he's thin, but I don't remember what it was. And I'm so sorry, listeners at home. I kind of feel like it was acid or something. Like, I remember them having done something to his, the dead body. Maybe it has something to do with what this scientist does. It was more gruesome. That's what I remember. But yes. They covered him in gold. It was just like Goldfinger. They painted his yeah. body uh -huh. in gold. Yeah. No, but I do remember that being a, like it was a gruesome death. And it was not in this movie. We don't really know how he dies in this movie. Yeah. This movie, because also it's in the 30s, they kind of don't show you the body. They kind of don't tell you it's a skeleton for a while, but it ends up being that Nick goes like, well, it was a skeleton. All skeletons look the same. They said it was a big guy. It's actually a thin guy. And he knew it because of some shrapnel that was in the skeleton's leg. Which they set up in the beginning when he like, he's an old man who can like, high kick his leg onto that table to show us how did you get your leg up so high wow this must be an important fact if you're showing us 
your leg. I didn't think about that at all. Watching it, I was like, okay, it's um, it's definitely not this wife character, the ex-wife, because she's... Well, she shows up and she finds the body. She finds the body and she's very foolish. You don't yes. get the impression she would be intelligent enough to pull it off. But then she has her new husband. They go like, is it that guy? But for a second, I didn't realize that that was her new husband. I thought mm-hmm. that was her older son. Oh. For a second, because I was unclear how many kids she had and things like that. And I went, oh, that's her new husband. I, I get yeah. it. Who I thought it was was the fiancé. Well, and they only added him again to make Dorothy Winant's character a little more likable and to make it so that we were sure that there was nothing going on between her and Nick. We didn't ever want to put a label on her of, like, trying to steal Nora's husband. Like, she's already in love. She's already got her own love story. Right. And this is how, you know, we're going to like him. When he says, I think your father's great. And she's like, well, why did your mom divorce him? And she goes, well, he has a secretary, you know. He yeah. cheated on her. And the husband's like, oh, well, I guess I'll just do my own typing then. And I was like, oh, 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 oh. <laughs> that's the first clue that this is going to be a witty banter kind of movie. And I'm here for it. I love witty banter movies. Old witty banter movies are the best. Also, I had a question because you know a lot more about old movies than I do. That guy who is the killer in this movie, the lawyer, is he the guy from miracle on 34th street that is also the bad guy in that movie it is him (gasps) you're right it's sawyer you're right really good job nick i didn't even put that together so if people sitting at home the guy that plays the lawyer in this is the guy that is the fake psychiatrist miracle on 34th street that gets um chris kringle locked up that's oh thanks for pointing that out they look so he looks so different all those years later In watching the movie, I was like, okay, he's the bad guy. He's always cast as like these wormy bad guys. So he had that market cornered. It made sense when it was him at the end. I just thought he was a little too obvious. Again, I think that the movie is more concerned with the relationship with Nick and Nora than it is really with trying to make a super intense mystery. Well, and at this point, this was a very popular book, and it was made immediately into a movie. I think, like, right when the book was published, made like into a movie. Like Gone Girl. Like Gone Girl. So people, I think, already knew what was going to happen. They already okay. knew who the killer was. So, yeah, gotcha. it really is about seeing these two people on screen. And what I actually think is really cool about this movie, so, I mean, Dashiell Hammett wrote it, the, like, famous, prolific mystery writer, Um, He wrote The Maltese Falcon, Red Harvest, really, really great in this genre. He had like a lovely, wonderful relationship with Lillian Hellman, who's an awesome playwright. So they had a really cool, witty relationship, and Nora was said to be based on her. And so you've got them, and then you've got um, the people that wrote this screenplay. They're a badass team. They've written so many movies. Albert Hackett and Francis Goodrich. They're so freaking cool. So they're a couple. Um, She is 10 years older than him. They only worked together, and they were together until um, she passed. They wrote Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, Easter Parade, It's a Wonderful Life, Father of the Bride. What? Yes. Yes. They wrote all these movies together. They wrote, um, they won the Pulitzer Prize for the Diary of Anne Frank, the play. Did you ever see that play? I'm sure you've seen that play, right? I'm sure I've seen that play. 
so yeah. they're like a great writing team. But I think what's cool about this movie is there's so much equality in this relationship and so much respect for each other. Um, mm-hmm. And that women have a lot of power and say in this film. Because that yes. doesn't always happen. I mean, I was watching another Myrna Loy, William Powell movie last night. Because again, I'm a nerd, everyone. That's, this is what I do for fun. So I was watching this movie, Double Wedding, which was, it's like a cute movie. But the whole purpose of the movie is like bringing a woman down. Like she's the boss and she just has to come down to his level. And I kind of, I hate those movies. I like it when it's like, no, we're equal. We respect each other. We do this together. I didn't realize it till this time either. They set it up so that Mimi, the stepmom, the Mm -hmm. the woman that was married to Wynant, her relationship and Nora's relationship are actually kind of similar if you think about it, because she's financially supporting her husband and he's like evil. And then Nora's financially supporting her husband, Nick, but they have a great relationship. So it kind of shows like the toxic version of this and the not toxic version of this (laughs) of like, we love Nick. Nick isn't like demasculated. What's the word? Demasculated. Demasculated. Yeah. In the movie, Nick does not care that that his wife is the wealthy one. Mm -hmm. He likes it. And he goes like, I retired from doing that because I don't need to do that. My wife is rich. Yes. (laughs) I'm just going to just hang out. She's great. We'll hang out and drink and have a good time. So I, I love that. Yeah, you'd think that like in a lot of movies about retired people, even like The Incredibles, you go, there's a retired superhero who's dissatisfied because he's retired. And he yeah. goes like, I feel not like a man anymore. I need yeah. to get I need to get back into the old things. And you think that maybe Nick would be like that, of like, oh, I'm itching to solve a mystery again. And I can't just take my wife's money. That <laughs> makes me not a man. Yeah. But not in this movie. In this movie, he's more like, no, I'm happy with it. I'd love to not work. And I related to that. I was like, I'd love <laughs> <Me> to <laughs> just be married to someone who's rich and uh, and sit around all day and shoot BB guns at, at balloons yeah. and stuff like that. And he the, was a the funny roles guy. weren't put on them. Like, they right. chose those roles. Like, she wasn't choosing to be like, why aren't you doing a job? She was like, oh my God, wouldn't it be so much fun if you solved a case? I would like to solve one too. Let's do it. It's like that attitude. It's not like neither one of them is expected to like fulfill a gender role. And I love that. And I will say the scene you were just talking about was added into the film after the fact. Apparently, William Powell, he found this like little toy gun on set and the art department was trying to set up the Christmas tree and he kept shooting the balloons as they were trying to set it up. And they were, the, the director was like, this is going in the movie. This is too good. Put it in. So they added that whole scene after the fact. And it's such a delight. Yeah, it, it was a lot of fun because he's sitting there. It felt very much like what a couple must have been like with with no tv or phones because (laughs) they look so bored (laughs) nora is so bored sitting there watching her husband just mess around with the toy gun shooting balloons with pellets and you're like this is the most realistic scene i've ever seen in an old movie so william powell We love him. He's so fun in this, but they didn't want to use him and they didn't want to use her. The reason they didn't want to use him originally is because they thought he was too old. They were like, he's kind of serious. He's a little too old. I don't know. And then for her, they were like, "Mm, she's kind of our femme fatale. She always plays exotic roles. They had her playing before this. I want to put 2020 lens on. She was playing like 
Asian roles when, of course, she should not have been playing Asian roles oh, as not an no. Asian person. Oh, no. Um, that sucks. But, like, I understand, you know, that was yeah. a different time. I do, she was not a dick of a human. She was actually a lovely human, so it's like, oh, shit, they just had different ideas of what was acceptable back then. But she had played a lot of, quote-unquote, exotic ladies up till this point. So for each of them, this kind of defined a new part of their career and a much more successful part of their career. Because after this, both of their careers, like, take off again. Like, he had already had a career before, but they both take off and both do a lot of roles in this kind of genre that they hadn't really done before. I wanted to ask, how much older is that actor than than the actress? So she, he was like 1892, I think. So I'm going to have you do math because I don't okay. want to do math. He was he born was, in 1892. He was born in 1892 and she was born, I think, in 1905. Let me see. I wrote it down. Okay, so 13 years. 13 years. They would have been 13 years apart. You're right. Okay. So in 34, she would have been... She's 29, 29. right? In yeah, 34? and then he would have been... 43? Yeah, I was curious watching the movie because I was like, he does feel a bit older than she is. He does. But they pair so well together. Like, they did 14 movies together. That's crazy. It turns out William Powell was, like, a lovely person that people really enjoyed working with because we know that's not always the case. Like, it comes out way later, like, terrible, terrible things. William Powell doesn't have any of that. People really liked working with him. He seemed like a lovely person. And he had a great quote about her that I want to pull up. What William Powell said about Myrna Loy was, When we did a scene together, we forgot about technique, camera angles, and microphones. We weren't acting. We were just two people in perfect harmony. Myrna, unlike some actresses who think only of themselves, has the happy faculty of being able to listen while the other fellow says his lines. She has the give and take of acting that brings out the best. They really do have a delightful thing going on. The banter is so witty. They're so playful. There's this moment where she she pulls a gun out of his pocket. When mm-hmm. he's going to investigate, and she goes like, "What is this?" And then he goes like, "It looks like a stick-up." And he like does a funny thing, and I was like, "This actor is so natural. The way the way that he does that, the way that she's doing everything, they they really have a great chemistry." The director of this film, whose name was Woody W. S. Van Dyke, but they called him One Take Woody. This shoot was done in sixteen days. And he hated doing more than one take in general. He liked to have things really fresh. And he liked improvisation. And what he would do, the first take William Powell did on this picture, he didn't even tell him the cameras were rolling. He was like, we're setting up lights. Do whatever the hell you want to do. I don't care. And so they they shot the scene. And then um, when he thinks it's he's done with the rehearsal, he's like, cut, print, we're moving on. So he wouldn't ever really take cover shots. He would just shoot things as they went. Um, and all the actors had to be really prepared, uh, but also I think he said it allowed for people to behave more naturally. And he said the banter between Myrna Loy and William Powell was kind of how they were offset, and they were able to capture that on screen, and they would do it with so few takes. It was like they would do one take and move on. It was all so quick. And one of the actresses, Maureen O'Sullivan, who played Dorothy Wine at The Daughter, she had worked with him before, mm-hmm. Um, but she said she actually didn't enjoy making this movie because she felt like it was so rushed that she didn't get to like wow. enjoy her time working with William Powell. Yeah. One other thing the director did was he wanted to see how Myrna Loy would behave naturally. He wasn't totally sure if he wanted her or not. So he wanted to see what her reactions to things would be in general. So before she got this part, they were at a Hollywood party together and he pushed her in the pool. 
um, to see what her reaction would be once she got out of the pool. And he said she got out of the pool just like Nora Charles would have. She got out. She was pretty cool about it, was pretty funny about it. And he said, that's mm-hmm. it. That's Nora Charles. And wow. that scene where they enter, he didn't tell her they were doing it that day or that He told her right before they did it what they were going to shoot. So wow. everything is very, very fresh. For me personally, that sounds like hell. I would actually hate that. I like to be prepared and I like to right. think. Yeah. But yeah, it worked really well for them. They seem to be the kind of actors for who that is like a fun thing. Like it encourages things like them skipping off camera. Do you remember that scene where they like talk yes. about how, let's go do this together and they link arms and they skip. And I thought, how yeah. great is that? Yeah, it's definitely in an old movie like this where it kind of, they used to have much longer takes uh, and, like, longer shots. You'd see a whole scene play out in one shot rather than nowadays where it's cutting constantly. So it's it does feel like they have to be prepared because they have to know their lines backwards and forwards to be able to ramble them off so casually. And what's great about Nick and Nora is that every line is like a throwaway line, and that's what makes them look cool, is that they that nothing is too big of a deal ever. And they and even Nick had shot in one part of the movie, he doesn't care. <laughs> Nick says to this guy with a gun on him in the middle of the night, would you mind putting that gun away? My wife doesn't care, but I'm a very timid fellow. And she immediately goes, you idiot. That was a great part. That happens right before... I wanted to ask your opinion about this. He punches his wife. He slaps her in the face. (laughs) Yeah, he he knocks her out. That is, it does seem like a weird thing to do to save your wife. Because he's doing it to like knock her out of the way. Because he's like, he's like, she wouldn't stay out of the way. So right before the guy shoots the gun, he turns around and punches his wife in the face. He knocks her out cold. He knocks his wife unconscious. She may have a concussion. Who knows? But then they go, who knocked her out? And he goes, I did. And then he like wakes her up and she goes like, you didn't have to knock me out. Like that she doesn't care. And the cop goes, that's a woman with hair on her chest. Yeah, that's a woman with hair on her chest. Yeah. Well, and also you forgot a smooth part where he punches her in the face, grabs behind her, grabs the pillow and chucks the pillow at the man with the gun, causing the gun to go off. And it wasn't them that incited the gun. It was the police. So if the police had never come, they wouldn't have been in danger because the guy had put the gun away until he heard the police. Exactly. And he wouldn't have had to punch his wife in the face. <laughs> um, but he, but she didn't care, you know, and he did it to save her, I guess. So it's certainly a weird thing to do. But in the in the context of the movie, you go like, okay, it's essentially like he threw her out of the way. But you go like, it's just weird that he like hits her face to get her out of the way. He he could have just like tossed tossed her or something like that. I, I don't know. But um, yeah, it's definitely a part that you're watching the movie and you go like, what just happened? Did you just punch her? And um, then she's knocked out and you go like, is he going to try to blame it on the criminal that Not is in Nick. front of him but no he goes like i hit her i had to knock her <laughs> out and then um but then they're, they're so cool with it that later you forget that it happened yeah. do you know that that's in the book by the way that whole he scene described like that yes well because it's a it's supposed to be like a slap okay. um and it's he is open-handed in it but it's somehow open-handed enough and hard enough that it totally knocks her out 
he's, maybe it's hitting a, her head on the floor that knocks her out yeah oh, yeah but yeah he definitely could have pushed her yeah. but he but he slaps her yep, that's all in the book all of it i think even down to the line about the hair on her chest line i think oh, that's well, in the book there you go blame the blame the book blame the not, damn not, book not the movie um but yeah, they're still so likable. The the characters Do are so likable. Do you think now what I like about that too is it's showing a woman not being hysterical for once because I feel like women in this era are always either yeah. either a femme fatale or completely hysterical and be like, oh no, gone. Ah. And so I think part of me wonders if they kept that hit in there to be like, whoa, she can take a punch. They're very rough with each other. Yeah, the, the Nick and Nora, um, and Nick is kind of portrayed as a character who has a sordid past he's like friends with criminals the guy that has the gun on them goes like hey you're you're on the level mm-hmm. and tommy two fingers or whatever <laughs> said you were cool why aren't you cool and he goes i'm cool man i'm cool so uh you go like they're a little rough and tumble so i i think they wanted to have a little bit of roughness between them i don't it's a weird choice to say she can take a hit, so we'll have her husband hit her. Yeah. Like, they could have had um, <laughs> another person hit her and just have her go like, oh, I got hit, but I'm still on the case. But, uh, you know, they were like, we can only think to have the husband hit. And I felt weird saying it, too, because I'm like, I'm not trying to promote domestic violence in any way. Like, obviously. Yeah. My whole thing was, like, exactly what you're saying. They were trying to show that, like, she's tough, she's strong, and I'm like, anyone else could have. It's one of the oddest moments, but it's one of these moments that you go like, the 30s, right? <laughs> All these movies that we watch for this podcast are like, oh, well, you know, it... It was a different time back then. It certainly was. Yeah, so this one, uh, again, there are things in it that do not age well. But then there are certain things that you say, oh, well, that's nice. Look at that. You know, Nora's treatment is great. Except for, you know, punching her in the face. I like that she helped solve the mystery. I like that she is the wealthy one. I like that Nick is not intimidated by the fact that she is wealthier than he is. I like that he's like, yeah, I'm fine just managing her affairs. It's like, that's fine. And you can tell he does nothing all day. Women were involved in the writing of it. And not just women, like two partnerships were involved in the making of this. Two strong male-female partnerships. And you can see that in the film. That is very nice. I wrote down another one of my favorite exchanges. I have a top three. This is probably one or two. It ties with the other one that we just read. But this is when um, Nora doesn't want Nick to go out and like search... Clyde Winant's old apartment at night with Asta because mm-hmm. she's worried something's going to happen to him so she's trying to stop him and she says did you make me come all the way out to New York just to become a widow and he says to her you wouldn't be a widow for long and she says you bet I wouldn't and he says not with your money ah oh, it's just the one-upping the consistent one-upping because it would have been good enough to just like you wouldn't be a widow for long there's one punchline then you get another one then you get another one it's just the building of the punchlines is perfect they're remarkably witty. Movies nowadays are are hardly witty at all. When's the last time you ever saw a movie that was this witty? Well, Knives Out was witty, right? Knives Out was witty, but it wasn't as witty as this movie. It's tough to write where the characters are all witty. 
it's easier to write where the writer is witty and the characters are not. It's easier to write where you're essentially laughing at the characters. Like you go, a lot of the comedy in Knives Out, which is a funny movie, but you go like, the comedy comes from, isn't it funny that uh, Daniel Craig is talking about a donut? Or Daniel Craig is like in the car while the murderers are running around and he's listening to an iPod. And you go like, it's funny because he seems dumber than he actually is. And then the whole family in that movie is funny because they're all clowns. Like they're all kind of uh, dumb characters. And there is some cleverness. There's certainly cleverness. But it's very hard to write something where the characters have to be clever and smart. And constantly, the comedy does not come from laughing at the characters, but the comedy comes from what the characters are actually saying, that the characters are actually funny and smart people. It's something that I feel like has kind of um, gone. What I'm realizing as you're saying this is I think it's maybe because these things had to be more theatrical back then. They came from yes. a theatrical, like this could have been on stage kind of place yes. where you're right. We had longer takes. People have more lines to memorize. So the intelligence, the comedy comes from what people are saying to each other. Um, mm-hmm. And nowadays we don't tell stories with as much dialogue. We tell stories with our eyes. We tell stories in many other ways. So I right. feel like people have found ways to make things appear as clever without the dialogue there. And this yeah. has just like the dialogue. Um, but right. also what you were saying, too, about how usually we show cleverness through the writer, not what's actually being done or said on screen. Yeah, that's a really good point. I love that. It's interesting to watch movies that are written by playwrights as well, because it used to be that essentially every screenwriter was also a playwright. Yeah, well, and every actor pretty much came from Broadway for the most part. So it's like you got people who are fluent in both worlds. There was a lot more intermingling. Yeah. And uh, then time went by. There started being, you know, more specifically screenwriters and genre screenwriters and things like that. And I also feel like we have gotten to a point where Hollywood has become... A system like a hierarchy like there are dynasties in mm-hmm. Hollywood where you go like you see families of the people writing these movies are the children of the other people that wrote movies and you go like sometimes when you create a system like that the people in power are not the people that are the most talented they're the people that inherited it from Whoever. It feels a little bit to me from a certain perspective is that you look at a lot of these big movies and you go like, oh, well, this is written by this person's kid or a friend of this person. So I have something to tell you about this because it's you brought it in so naturally and it's actually brilliant. Um, so Marina Sullivan, we talked about her earlier. She's the woman that plays Dorothy Winant. Guess who she is? Who? She's Mia Farrow's mother. <laughs> really? Yes. So it's like you're talking about this and I'm like, I think that, yes, dynasties happen. And I do think talented people come from dynasties. Yes. But at the same time, it's also like it would be great if other people could also have a shot. It's They can be talented, but their door is already open, you know? Absolutely. I like Mia Farrow. She's great. And I'm like, like Mia Farrow you mean mother much. of Ronan Farrow, who's like saving everything right now? 
That's, I just wanted to put that out there. It's, she's also pretty interesting too because she she did a lot of movies with this director. She was Jane in Tarzan and Jane. Tarzan the Ape Man with Johnny Weissmuller. She was Jane. She was Jane? Yes. That's great. But she retired pretty early because her husband had joined the Navy. And when he came back, he had typhoid. And she was like, you know what? I'm good. I don't really want to act anymore. I'm just going to like take care of my husband who has typhoid. He's got typhoid. I'll take care of him. Yeah, she was Jane and Tarzan. Oh, she was in A Day at the Races, the Marx Brothers film. That's mm-hmm. how I know her. She was in Anna Karenina, David Copperfield, The Barretts of Windpole Street, Tarzan and His Mate. She was the mother of Mia Farrow, classmate of Vivian Lee. She was in Pride and Prejudice, the Lawrence Olivier one. And she was in Hannah and Her Sisters because Mia Farrow was married to Woody Allen and... Ugh. Right, right, gotcha. Gross. Yeah. But yeah, I think that's fascinating. I mean, she still did things every now and then, but that's her That's her little story in a nutshell. And now I would like to know about the sequels. First off, I just want to know, should I watch them? So I would say the ones worth watching are the first three. They're by far the best. I almost ruined one of them for you because you were, I'm not even going to tell you. I know that Nick and Nora have a kid i know that they have nick jr they do in the third one i saw that because i i looked a little bit are the sequels written by the same people dashiell hammett wrote the stories for the first three i'd rank them like one two three are exactly as they should be the top three they're all really good yeah one two three is the order i'd put them in uh the fourth one shadow of a thin man is cool because it has donna reed in it and it's good it's fine the last two, especially The Thin Man Goes Home, I was not a fan of The Thin Man Goes Home. It's not my cup of tea. I don't like it very oh, okay. much. And then Song of the Thin Man is um, so many years later, it kind of loses the vibe of it a little bit. Okay. So I, I would rank it one, two, three, four, six, and then five. Okay. You know what? But six and five are way five. below. Four gotcha. is good. And then one, two, and three are like really good. And one, okay. two, and three, the stories, Dashiell Hammett came up with those, but I don't know if it's the same screenwriting couple team. I think it might be. But it's always the same actors. It's always Nick and Nora. They did get a new dog. They got Asta Jr. for the last two. Well, it's the junior. It's the dynasty of dogs. Yes, Um, and then they do have Nick Jr. Is it always the same Nick Jr. or is it a different Nick Jr.? I think they did get a different actor. Okay, gotcha. But it is fun watching Nick with a baby because he's still a lush. I saw that. Jimmy Stewart is in the second one. Yes, he is. Is he good in it? Yes. He does that thing with his hair a lot. It's very like oh, yeah. pulling he, my hair back all the time. Pull, yeah. He loves to do that. that he does it so much in, in this Thin Man. I feel like the second Thin Man's a little slower. It's like a really fun sequel because it hits a lot of the points the first one does. Like in the Thin Man's, there's always going to be a part where Nick and Asta go off on their own exploring. That's okay. always a part of all the Thin Man's. How many other franchises were around at this time like so many like so many was this like one of the biggest franchises do you think oh yeah it was a huge hit it was a really big franchise at the time but the way they did things back then was it was like there would be a character and there would be so many series of this character there are series upon series so that's kind of like the franchise like even before this William Powell did Philo Vance one of his earlier talkie experiences was playing Detective Philo Vance which is like also a radio show they even had the Thin Man radio show for a little while which didn't have these actors oh cool oh that's not cool no well they did do it on Lux Radio Theater which I totally listened to they do the Thin Man on that but then they had a separate series so yeah no this was a popular series but there were so many series back then like everything if you liked a character that character had a series 
did any other actors ever besides the radio show in in like movies or plays or whatever did any other actors play these characters nick and nora they did it was i forget the woman it was peter lawford they brought it back we can look it up these are nick these are great questions peter lawford and phyllis kirk it was the tv series I ran for 72 episodes. Wow, that's a lot of episodes. Yeah, from 1957 to 1959. I have okay. never seen it, and I don't really wish to, because I much prefer... Um, movies. Movies. Nick, can I tell you about these people? Because they're cool. Do you want to hear about them? Yeah. William Powell. Do you know Do you know him at all? No, you probably no, don't know him at all. I okay. don't. I don't know him at all. This movie, like, reset off his career, and all the movies he does after this are just, like, so much better than what he did before. He got nominated for an Academy Award three times for this, for My Man Godfrey, and for, oh God, something like Life with Father. But that's his other like big role besides the Thin Man. My Man Godfrey was a big, a big hit. Okay, so he was married three times. The first time was just to like a random woman. The second time Mm -hmm. was to Carol Lombard, who is a famous movie star of that day and who Uh ended up marrying Clark Gable. But they... They were married and got divorced and were on such good terms that they made My Man Godfrey together, which was a huge hit, which I think is like, oh, that's kind of nice. It's not actually my personal cup of tea, but it's nice. He went to ADA to train the American Academy of Dramatic Art in New York, started on Broadway, went to Hollywood. At first, he was playing like villains and he worked his way up to playing the leading man. Uh, His famous roles are The Great Zigfield, which he did with Myrna Loy. My Man Godfrey, One Way Passage, Mr. Roberts. Oh, he was in How to Marry a Millionaire, which we talked about in the show. Libeled Lady, Reckless with Gene Harlow. And so Gene Harlow, this is his big story. So he fell in love with her in this movie. You know who Gene Harlow is, right? The beautiful blonde bombshell. What was she in? She was in, like, so many things. Libeled Lady, Dinner at Eight, Wife versus Secretary. She was very beautiful. And she died tragically young. So it's like they fell in love on this movie set and they were so in love with each other. And she Uh died of uremia at 27. Oh, no. And it was like the most tragic. She died so suddenly. And he also found out he had cancer around the time that she died. And I was watching the movie yesterday where she died and where he found out he had cancer. And I was like, oh, my God, the fact that this movie is still a comedy and he's making it work is incredible. But yeah, he had rectal cancer and kind of like went silent a year or so to not act and to recover and it was it was a real like tragedy in his life um but then i guess eventually he met his final wife hold on her name was diana lewis and three weeks after meeting her they got married and they were married until his death which is so at least he did find like a good love story that's how you do it three weeks and do it that's how the people in this movie got married. They were like, it's been three whole months. Why aren't we married yet? That was how you did it back in the day. Well, it's because they wanted to have sex. And then they would have sex and go, oh, shit, this was a massive mistake. What if we had just had sex first and then understood? But that's okay. To each his own. However you want to do it. But I, I was also just piecing together. So I had mentioned he was married to Carol Lombard, who also tragically died young. She died in a plane accident. So that, but that was a couple of years later. He's an unlucky fella to fall in love with. Well, not for the last time. The last time it worked out great. Okay, good. Well, and he did seem lovely and have a lovely life besides those things. But that's incredibly tragic to have all of those things happen. With they have two. That's very sad. And then we can move on to Miss Myrna Loy. Her name was yeah. Myrna Williams at first, but then it became Loy. She has some cool stuff too. So she was trained as a dancer originally typecast as this like exotic vampy lady 
Nora Charles changed her type. She was never nominated for an Academy Award, but they eventually gave her like a Lifetime Achievement Award in the 90s. Okay. She's originally from Montana, which is funny because the idea of Nick Charles came to Dashiell Hammett supposedly while he was working on a story out in Montana. Wow. There you go. But her dad was, I guess, a very conservative person and her mom kept wanting to like go to California and her mom got really sick. I think her mom had to get a hysterectomy at one point and recovered in California and was like, this is the place for me. So when Myrna Loy's dad died when she was only 13, the mom was like, bye Montana, we're going to Venice. I think they actually moved to Culver City, but they moved out to California. That's where they lived. A fun story about Myrna Loy as a youngster. She modeled for one of her teachers, I guess, for a sculpture. And the sculpture is like still there to this day. It's at the Venice High School. Um, when wow. she was like 15 or 16, she was the sculpture. It's in the movie Grease, where they filmed Grease, that opening scene, where they're like, Danny Zuko! And it's like they're in that gardeny yeah. kind of area in front of the school. You can see her statue. Isn't that okay. crazy? That, that's crazy. And I guess it got vandalized so much that they just ended up putting a different bronze statue of her up. But that's like a fun little fact. Uh, she was very beautiful. She was a dancer. So she started working at, you know, the Egyptian theater. She yeah. started as like, before the show, they'd have dancers come on and do like pantomimes yeah. and dance. And so someone was there taking pictures and they took a picture of her that somehow got to uh, Rudolph Valentino. Uh-huh. And he was looking for a, like a leading actress for his upcoming film, Cobra. And he was like, ooh, this girl is beautiful. She would be perfect. So they had her come in and do a screen test. She didn't get it, Uh but Rudolph Valentino's wife liked her so much. This is, like, it's women helping women. So I want to look up her name. Her name was Natasha Rambova. And she was like, oh, this girl's pretty cool. I like her. I'm producing something. I'm going to put her in a small role in this film and see what happens. So she gives Myrna Lloyd this role where she has, like, this gorgeous makeup on. She's kind of like a showy person. A picture was taken from that set. That got put in a motion picture magazine, and that's how she got her acting contract. Just from like these random wow. events. Isn't Pictures that crazy? That's yeah, crazy. Because she had this like dramatic makeup on where she looked very seductive and sassy, and gotcha. that got her a movie contract. Good for her. There's all that. So yes, she she was married a couple times too. Didn't really work out so well. She also seemed like a lovely human. They loved working together. She wasn't like a diva to work with, which I I don't know. Sometimes Mm -hmm. I think that's a rude way of putting things because women are allowed to ask for things too. Mm -hmm. Um, But that's kind of her her story. I also wanted to point out, I wrote down Cesar Romero, the Joker. He played, he's the husband of um, Mimi. That's Cesar Romero? Yeah. Is it Cesar or Cesar? Cesar Romero. He was the guy that was like the suspicious new husband? Yes, that was him. Holy cow. He was so young. And like handsome. Young and handsome. Wow. I've never seen him not as the Joker. So if that was uncovered for you and for me, it was like Sawyer from Miracle on 34th Street is the lawyer. What have we not covered that you want to talk about or that you would like to cover? In this movie? In this this movie. Okay, let's think. I mean, the shadows are cool. I I liked the cinematography of it, the use of shadow. I love the way black and white films look when it's done, like, well. This is one of those. It's a beautiful movie, the way that it looks. There really isn't too much to say with it in terms of um, what's great about the movie is how simple it is. It's, It's simple and fun, 
and it takes a while to get to the two main characters to get to nick and nora yeah. but they are uh again just so charming the dog is great if you give your character a dog that immediately makes them more likable they knew to do that i just thought of a fun anecdote that i had kind of forgotten to bring up earlier about how you know i was talking about they did a lot of this in one take or very few takes because the director likes to keep things quote unquote fresh so the only scene they had to do a lot of retakes for was that big final scene where they're all together the shot of that is gorgeous by the way when it's like yeah. over the cop's mm -hmm. shoulder and you see everyone sitting at the table and nick is at the head of the table so that is the one scene that required a lot of retakes and it was because because first of all, Nick talks through that whole scene. So he had so many lines to memorize, yeah. but they were saying he didn't totally understand how it was breaking down. Like William Powell was like, hold on, wait a second. <laughs> you know, he'd get confused. Yeah. Uh -huh. And then um, apparently that day, the in the script, they're served oysters. Right. And they kept using the same oysters all day. So by oh, the no. end of the day, under the hot lights, apparently they were like, is putrefied a word? They were yeah. repulsive, I guess. Um, so Myrna Loy was like, I don't think any of us ever wanted oysters for a very long time after shooting yeah. that movie. But she said that was the only scene that took a while, and it was because of the amount of dialogue that William Powell had to get out, but also that no one was entirely sure of what the like what had really happened, and he was really the killer. And there's so many misdirections, too, and it all makes so much sense how that would be very confusing and difficult. Shoot. yes there is a lot of that and there is that moment where she goes like are you sure of this and he goes like no but it's the only way that it all makes sense yeah. he's figuring it out as he goes too just like william powell is while he's saying these lines yes yeah. it, it's why william powell looks so real when he's doing it because he also doesn't know what's happening i i like that they do a thing that bugged me a little bit during that scene uh -huh. where he so clearly is referring to the killer as a he th <gasps> throughout it right and and he's going like and then he does this and then he did this and that and that and i was like just don't specify don't specify because i still wanted to be on the edge of my seat I, because even though Nick was saying, I don't know who it is, in my mind, it was like, he does know who it is. He's just making a gag like he always does. But I wanted the movie to hold us in suspense a little bit more because he eliminated like half the suspects at the table when he started saying he, 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 he. And I was like, oh, well, what if it's the daughter? I think it's like of the time when they just refer to everything as like he or a man when they mean everyone. Right. That's like yeah. the pronoun they use for everyone. They they mm -hmm. weren't familiar with like they, them back then. You know? So it's yeah. like uh -huh. when I'm referring to a group of people, you're all going to be referred to by he. That was kind right. of how I took it. Gotcha. But gotcha. I also knew who the killer was, so that I didn't even clock that. Right. And I don't remember the time when I didn't know who the killer was. Like, there was a time when I watched this for the first time, and wow. I don't even remember what when that person thought. When is the first thought. time you watched this movie? Oh, I'm sure it was in high school. It was definitely in high school. Wow. That's when I did the majority of my first time watching. Because I lived in Michigan, and it's winter, and I couldn't go outside and from the ages of 14 to 16 you can't drive or do anything you're inside your house so i watched a lot of classic movies they're they're great fun to watch this movie was a ton of fun i think that nick is so hesitant to say that he's on the case yeah. while being on the case 
I wonder, is that a consistent thing through all the Thin Mans? Is he always like, I'm not on this case? For the most part, yeah. The last time I watched all of them in order was like three years ago, I want to say. I don't totally remember, but I feel like for the fourth one, he might be more in on it. Like it was maybe a friend of theirs, and he was like, that was the horse racing one. I don't remember as well, I'm sorry. Gotcha, (laughs) that's okay. Yes, I think that the the movie eventually becomes very satisfying Mm -hmm. with him being on the case and solving everything. He plays his cards so close to his chest and doesn't tell anybody anything. Even his wife, he kind of holds off on telling her certain things, and he sends her to Grant's tomb at one point. So there was a, a little bit of that where I was like, okay... It seems like every single time this guy's on a case, he would say, I'm not on this case, just as like a tactic to play dumb, you know? I did enjoy it. A little bit, I was like, you're on the case, man. Stop saying you're not on it. (laughs) I think it maybe wasn't until that guy showed up with the gun that he was really in on the case and like actively trying to solve it. Because I think before then, he really was like, I don't care. I don't want to do this. I think he really has given it up. But I do love this idea that you bring up of like, maybe this is always the way he's done it in the past. Yeah, because we've never seen him. He's By the time we meet him, he's already retired. We didn't talk a lot about that scene where they're throwing a Christmas Eve party and like everybody's there you've got criminals there you've got cops there you've got reporters there and then the reporters there are the ones that are like oh you are working on a case look there's dorothy wine and look there's that person they wouldn't be here if you weren't working on a case and i still get mad for that one guy who called his mother and they like hang up the phone when he's talking to his mom and i'm like hey reporter wait your turn yes that's a great scene i love all these scenes with moving parts yeah um it feels very play-ish and farcical of like coming in and out of doors and nick and nora are playing fools a lot where they are going around and gathering information by acting like they're dumb again saying you're not on the case seemed like a tool that he was using to gather information and go like oh i I don't have anything to do with it i don't know anything about it but he clearly knew more than anybody but uh yes that was a an interesting scene it's, again, so much hitting you at, at once that you kind of don't really process all of it. Your brain kind of goes like, okay, how many of these characters are going to be in the rest of the movie? Like, how much of this do I need to pay attention to? I'm wondering why they were showing, they were showing like all these drunken fun scenes of like, this is how this person's acting at this party. And now I'm wondering if it's because they wanted to show us how different Nick and Nora are from your average married couple. So like, yes, they have witty banter. They wait on their guests who are like, who are like seedier, quote unquote, they're criminals. Oh, that was one of my things. They were breaking the balloons and yet the next day he's shooting the balloons. Where'd those new balloons come from? But yeah, I love them showing the drunken rebels of the people. And I'm wondering what the purpose of that was other than to show how unique this couple is. Yeah, she says, I I love you because you know all the most wonderful people. And it's kind of a gag because everybody at the party is kind of a seedy character. I forgot about that button. What a good button. I think that it's also interesting, again, watching a movie to where at the time it was made, everything would have been very contemporary, that you would have understood the social norms of saying, okay, why they are different or similar to the average married couple of the time. 
because we watch it and I did not at all pick up on the idea that they are serving the guests because I was like, yeah, that's what you do at a party. They're taking around the drinks and giving them to people. But I did not even think about the idea that Nora is supposed to be very wealthy, but still she's walking around with a tray of drinks and asking what she can get people. And Nick's doing it too. It's not even a gender thing. It's like both of them. Yeah. They show that like they're kind and generous. There's again the guy making the call, the long distance call to his mother in San Francisco. For us, we don't really get what long distance means in terms of it costs more money yes. to make a long distance call. And he's like, I don't have money to make the call. And they go, oh, just go ahead and do it. That's yeah. fine. So again, it's very interesting to watch these things. Things go totally over our head because we do not understand even how a phone works. This kind of thing happens all the time in old movies where they'll pick up the receiver and then they'll hit the hang up button a bunch of times. And I go like, how does that work? Aren't they hanging up a bunch of times? <laughs> no, they're clicking for the operator. Like the operator would hear that, the clicks. Gotcha. And they'd go, oh, someone wants to talk. And they'd have right. their... Because there used to be operators. That's weird. I love that you picked up on the um, the long distance thing too, because Nick makes a face about it. Because at first yeah. he's like, yeah, make a call. It's no big deal. And then when the guy picks up and he's like, long distance, Nick is like, oh, come on. But he still allows it. And that's directly opposing what Macaulay did in the opening scene of being a cheap ass. Yes, that Nick is nice. The bad guy's bad. I wonder if anyone watching the movie could definitively solve the mystery without having seen the end of the movie. The only reason I think so is because Macaulay consistently does this thing where he goes to Nick's house and is like, I don't know where this guy is. Oh, there's a call for me from this person relaying almost no new information? Better go. But right. like to me, that was the most suspicious thing because he kept doing it in front of Nick. It's always just interesting when you watch a mystery, a mystery movie of going like, if I were to watch this again, would I pick up on little details that give the killer away before the end of the movie? Because... Yeah, the whole thing about he gets the calls and things like that, you go like, okay, it seems like someone is tricking him. Like, he is being manipulated as well, to where someone is calling and pretending to be this man who's clearly dead, and they're keeping the scheme up, which, you know, Nick explains in the beginning of the dinner scene. When I watched the movie, I didn't realize that there was a time jump because I did not realize that the first scene took place three months before the rest of the film. The The movie was like, she comes in to see her dad and she goes like, I'm getting married. And then he goes, oh, great. When? I'm, go I'm going out of town. And with our, I think maybe our more modern sensibilities, we think oh, you go out of town for like a day or something. And and they were like, oh, we're getting married on December whatever. And 30, he's like, I'll yeah. be back by then. So I assumed they meant a few days. I think that's a very natural assumption to make. And I think I have made that assumption before as well. The lawyer, I think, is the first one to say, I saw him three months ago. And 
watching the movie, I was like, okay, well, he's immediately lying because he saw him last night. It takes you a second to recalibrate and realize. Because everyone starts going, I saw him three months ago. I saw him three months ago. And then you go, oh, I guess maybe the beginning of the movie was three months ago. No, that's a totally valid thing. They don't make it very clear. Um, Especially because we don't trust these characters. So when they're saying, I haven't seen him for three months, we don't. Unless you're really sure that time has passed. Yeah, we assume that they're lying. If you go back and watch, like, Knives Out, you can actually piece the mystery together prior to Daniel Craig because they actually do give you all the clues that you need to solve the mystery but this one I feel like maybe they don't actually give you all the clues that you need do you want to hear some things that I noticed this time knowing who did yeah let yeah so some things I was noticing from the first scene Okay, so what I noticed with Macaulay, like the first time we see him, he's cheap and he's having money troubles. That tells us right off the bat. When he goes to talk to Wynett, he's constantly trying to find out where he's going and when he'll be back. And they try to make it sound like, he's like, well, what do I do about money? But he he also, when he's getting out of the cab, wants to make sure that the daughter doesn't know where the dad's going either. Like he wants to make sure that it's a mystery where anyone's going. He wants to be the one that has this information of no one knows where he is kind of thing. And like how that was important to him that she didn't know. But one of the things that I noticed this time, too, was uh, his last scene with Macaulay. He's on an elevator, and he's lifting the elevator, and they're having this exchange. And then he says goodbye to him. And I was like, oh, shit, the guy that killed you, you're saying goodbye to, and you're, like, ascending to heaven. With imagery they're showing us right now. That was what I had written down. (laughs) Yeah, we hear Mac is a lawyer, and we're like, you don't trust lawyers, I guess. They're trying to set it up that he seems very sweet and trustworthy because Wynant trusts him. But then they're also setting us up that Wynant forgets things. That Wynant can be kind of, I don't want to say cruel, but he can be very hard with the people around him. I also love Tanner. I was noticing at this time how suspicious Tanner looks. That's the guy that's working in his office, the clerk. Because yeah. he makes a face as he's opening up the, the safe. And I don't remember if I've noticed that before, but this time I did where I was like, oh shit, he knows nothing's in that safe. Um, but we don't really think about him, especially when Nick runs into him later and we realize that that actor is actually Cockney and was having, hiding an accent and had really been in jail and learned bookkeeping in jail. Yeah. I think the biggest, two biggest questions I have leaving this viewing were, how could you steal $50,000 and expect to get away with it without murdering him? That must have always been the plan. And then two, what the hell was Nunheim's part in this? They introduce this character, Nunheim. He's this guy with a scar on his face. He apparently has somehow witnessed the murder. I don't totally to this day still understand how he witnessed the murder. He's trying to make money off of witnessing the murder. He has the stupidest death I think I've ever seen. And I think it's because they only had 16 days to shoot and they didn't know what to do. So they have him opening a door and then going, ah, and then then falling over. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Um, but yeah. yeah, his role to this day is just like another body count and doesn't make sense to me. Like his part in the whole. He looks to be a suspicious figure. He is obviously a red herring for, for a while to where it looks like he is the killer. He makes a mysterious phone call. And then you see that he is there when the woman is killed. And then the explanation later is that he somehow witnessed the first killing? Is that what it was? I don't know. I didn't piece why he would have been there necessarily. Like, they'd never explained how he knew these people or why he would be there. 
He just was. <laughs> he, just, no... he just was there. I thought maybe he was like some sort of associate with the woman who's killed. Julia Wolf. Maybe he was dating her. They do insinuate that he was seeing Julia Wolf and that she was yes. seeing multiple people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay, that was just explained. What I'm trying to wrap my head around right now is did he witness both murders or just Julia's murder? I think it was just Julia's murder and then he was trying to bribe Macaulay. And then he could have gotten away with bribing Macaulay, but he asked for too much. Gotcha. And then they added that whole extra confusing thing of like his live-in girlfriend, Marion. And yeah. she was kind of in there for no reason except to give that funny line about stool pigeons and to be like brassy. To give us another character type. Yeah, they just brought her in. Just cause. To go like, well, maybe it's her. Eventually what Nick does at the end of the movie is Nick is talking to Mimi the wife character, the mother. She's essentially the key of how he figures it out because she's right about to expose Macaulay and then he exposes himself because he tries to kill... What were you going to do? Even if he kills one other person, he's still going to get caught. He's surrounded by cops. Also, his face gives it away in that scene. If you look at him yeah. during that scene next to Mimi, he's telling you everything with his face. You know those final moments before they even say it's him, before you see the gun under the table. And you're like, oh, no, who has the gun? You know it's him because of what his face is doing. If you're looking at his face. You suspect that Nick, in retrospect, you go, okay, Nick knows the whole time that it's him, which is why Nick puts him next to him. And he goes like, he's going to help me. And then you go like, yeah, he put him next to him because he knew that he was going to pull a gun, I guess. Nick is magic. He just knows everything. If there is a money laundering thing going on, there are three people involved. There's Tanner, there's Julia, and there's Macaulay. Those are the three people involved with money laundering. Since Julia is dead, the only other person it could be is one of the other two. Because they're the only people in communication about the money. And the person that's the most in communication about the money is Macaulay. But yeah, her only having 25000 meaning someone else has the other 25000 And then we know it's not Tanner from Nick's interaction with him. And the, the way they just try to foil us is making Macaulay seem so meek and so forgettable and so bland. He seems like the boring choice. And then they say, but he is the choice. And you go, not the fiance. There's always the dinner party. There's always all the different characters. There's always a dinner party. I'm trying to remember if it's the same in every single one, but at least for like the first four. And it, one of them, I don't think it was a dinner party, but it felt like a dinner party. It was something like that. And Nick always wow. unveils the killer at the dinner party. And there's people of various class levels and relationships. and That's great. He and Nora are the drinking socialite detectives. I did love the part where she asked him how many martinis he had had. And she orders the same amount and is just like so sick she in the next scene. She drinks six martinis. In the first scene that she's in, she says, well, give me six martinis. And he drinks her drink. He's, he's drinking everything through the whole movie. Everything. Doesn't he at one point say something about like, I'm not a detective anymore. I'll get in the way of my drinking. Yes, he does. Later on, I think he has a line too about like, this is really cutting into my drinking time. There's constant references to like, I need to be drinking right now. Oh, it's putting me way behind in my drinking was the line I wrote down. There's a line where they're reading the newspapers and it's talking about the case. She says, uh, I heard you were shot five times in the tabloids. And he says, it's not true. He didn't come anywhere near my tabloids. And they're both funny. This is another thing I wanted to ask you. So I know that Winant is the thin man. Yes. All of the titles have to do with the thin man. Do they reference 
whinant in the other ones? Like, do they ever talk about that guy that tried to kill him with the R last name? Do they ever talk about what he's a magic scientist who makes <laughs> gold into things into gold? Um, do they ever talk about any of that? So what happens is this movie's so popular that people start to think of Nick, of William Powell as the thin man. And they specifically have one of them is called another thin man. Yes. Right? But they, it's not Clyde Winant. It's like that's what ends up being the yeah. dead body is the thin man ends up being okay. the dead body. But then gotcha. what happens is with the thin man goes home, they just give up. And they're like, okay, we get it. Right. Nick is the thin man. It's like Baby Yoda. You know, they go... We'll just call him Baby Yoda. We tried to fight this and tell you that's not his real name, but whatever. It's funny that that's when they give up because I also really didn't like that movie as much. So I was like, okay, you've given up in the title. You've given up in the storytelling. That's where we are. This is when they give up. What are some other movies? There are a few other movies that are titled something where you go like, why isn't the main character just called that? You know, like um, Ratatouille. The movie Ratatouille. Oh. Why isn't the rat just named Ratatouille? Everyone calls the rat Ratatouille. They go, oh, that's Ratatouille. There are a bunch of animes. There are a bunch of Japanese animes. Because I like Japanese anime. You like things, <laughs> old, old movies. I liked anime when I was in high school. And there were all of these animes that have titles that they are tantalizingly close to the main character's name, but they are not the main character's name. So I always think it's fun when they start calling, like, Jaws. Everyone calls the shark Jaws, but the shark's name is not Jaws. The shark's name is, doesn't have a name, but they called it Bruce on set. Um, but Jaws is not the name of the shark. So I think the thin man, it's funny that that's another one where you go like, he isn't the thin man, but everyone says he is the thin man. Like Doctor Who. In Doctor Who, Doctor Who is not called Doctor Who. They never call him Doctor Who. He's just the doctor. And then only in our world do we say he or she is Doctor Who, but it's the character's name is not Doctor Who. So there you go. Everyone, if you're listening to this and if there are comments, if you can put a <laughs> comment anywhere, put the comment of a movie title that should be the main character's name, but it, but it's not. But The Thin Man is a better title than The Drunk Detective. It could have been called Nick and Nora, but The Thin Man sounds more elusive. So the double feature portion is incredibly obvious. Go watch the next Thin Mans. I recommend the first three for sure. So go watch After the Thin Man and then Another Thin Man. They're both great. And I will say for a double feature, if you're like, okay, cool, I liked this Thin Man. I don't want to watch another one. I would say of their other pairings together, my personal favorite is Live Old Lady. I think it's great. And it's got Spencer Tracy and Jean Harlow. So it's like a four-person main character cast. They look like they're having a blast when they made it. Uh, I highly recommend that one. And I was realizing today, I can name all 14 of their films. Um, and I was very proud of myself. I have not seen all 14. Okay, let's hear it. Let's hear it. So before this, they did Manhattan Melodrama, The Thin Man, Evelyn Prentice, after, wait, yes, After the Thin Man, um, The Great Ziegfeld, uh, what comes after The Great Ziegfeld? Libeled Lady, Another Thin Man, um, Double Wedding, uh, Shadow of the Thin Man, Love Crazy, 
I love you again. The senator was indiscreet. Uh, the Thin Man Goes Home and Song of the Thin Man. There you it. go. I've seen the majority of those. You did it. Good job, Sarah. Thanks. You got to watch them in order though, right? It's the most fun to watch them in order, I think. They have the kid in the third one. The kid's in the third one. The third one is another Thin Man. And the yes. second one is after the Thin Man. Yes. If people think Nick is the Thin Man, another Thin Man is his kid. I had not put that together till now. Because I was thinking another thin man meaning another dead body. That's what I would think. Because if you think about it, you go, okay, after thin man makes perfect sense. Because you go, okay, the thin man was the guy who died in the first one. This is now what they did after that. There didn't have to be a thin man involved at all after the thin man. In fact... It's like, it, it. there shouldn't be a Thin Man in that We know movie. what you did last Thin Man. Yes. Okay, yeah. so there's Thin Man yeah. after Thin Man. Then there's another Thin Man. Okay, the second Thin Man has been introduced. What's the fourth one? <laughs> shadow of a Thin Man. Shadow of a Thin Man. So here's the thing. It could be a metaphorical shadow. It could be like, oh, well, we're living in the shadow of the the first movie. Or it could be, you know... There's no place to hide in the shadow of a thin man. Oh, and I do want to say that name is significant because the image that they use for this movie to promote it is that shadow. Like, if you saw that, you'd be like, oh, the thin man. It's like the trademark almost. Okay, so what's the next one? The thin man goes home. Okay, so this one has to be that Wynand, his dead body, his bones are shipped back to his house because he's the thin man. The thin man goes home it's not another thin man goes home it's the thin man goes home so that i don't know if that happens on screen but it probably is happening at some point the bones the early years of cremation they figured out how to do that and have cremated it and then they send it they send him on home and then i don't know if they follow up with that but that's what's going on and then the last one is song of the song of the thin man about musicians they gotta solve a music crime Okay, well, do the is the song that they sang about the events of the first movie? I wish to God it was. Song of a thin, the thin song man. Song of the, the thin song. man. So they wrote a song about Clyde Wynant. It's just a song about the, uh, yeah. the other thin man. So again, no new thin man in that. There's a thin man in the first one. No thin man in the second one. Another thin man. There now are a total of two thin men. And then I think that there may only be two Thin Men in the whole series. What would you have named the next one, Nick? If they had made another one, what would if you have named it? If they had made a, a, how many are there? There's six. If they had made a seventh one. If they made a seventh Thin Man movie? I think maybe you could call something the Thin Men. To go like, there are multiple Thin Men. The Thin Woman. Or yet another Thin Man. <laughs> There was already Another Thin Man, right? Mm -hmm. So this is a movie called Another Thin Man (laughs) with a question mark. Well, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. Uh, Thank you for having me again. We'll see you next time. (laughs) 